<laughs> okay, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you. You're an awesome God. So uh, above and beyond our understanding, you are way better than we could imagine. You are glorious in your goodness and your grace. Pray you'd help Sarah today as she looks at your word. Help us to grapple with this difficult issue and to uh, give, give us a revelation and insight to see who you are and what you're doing today and not just then. Lord, come and um, touch us with something of your nature and your grace in Jesus' name today. Oh, man. Um, I've done the handout because there are so many verses and so many bits and pieces in this that actually I'm not going to read them all um, and the ones that are on there are just a tiny, tiny number um, where there's kind of three or four points it's not that I've got three or four points on that particular thing if you wanted to write notes it's just it gives you some space to write something so if, if that was helpful for you um, so the topic of is God violent um, it's, it's actually one of those topics which for me hasn't ever been a particularly massive issue um, I, it's never been something that has really panicked me or worried me or whatever I've grown up in the church and I've heard all the stories in the Old Testament and I just kind of accepted them without really thinking about it. But I also kind of put them to one side because that didn't look like Jesus. So I knew that wasn't quite right, but I'd never actually spent time looking into it. But the thing is, I know people and some you know, quite close to me where actually this has been such a huge issue that they now don't believe that God is true or real at all because if he's what he looks like at times in the Old Testament, um, they actually don't want to know him and they see him as a monster and, you know, a Satan, effectively, in their description. Um, and actually, that is really heartbreaking when we see that what we see in the Old Testament at times and occasionally in the New can mean that people actually say, I don't want to know anything about your God. Um, so I think we need to have a vague idea of what is actually true, what's going on. As Steve hinted, this is such a huge, huge subject. I am going to skim over it. <laughs> but basically, hopefully, I'm going to give you some tools to be able to look at some of this stuff for yourself and actually be able to say, okay, when I come across this passage in the Old Testament, what, what happens? What do I do with that? How do I deal with it? What's possibly going on? Um, so, you know, I'm not denying that there is plenty of violence in the Old Testament. There's some in the New as well. Um, and some of that looks like it is done by God. Um, but I think the way that... The thing that is really important is that this affects how we see God. Do we see him as being good? Truly good? Do we see him as being truly loving? Do we see him as being kind? Do we see him as being on one side of a human argument? You know, and from what I've heard, it was really common in the Second World War for people to say, well, God's on our side. And that actually doesn't matter which side of the battle you were on. People in Germany were saying the same as they were here. God is on our side. Um, is God on one side of a human argument or not? Is God like Jesus? Or is he like some of the stuff we see in the Old Testament and Jesus is only a teeny piece of what we see of God? 
ultimately, is God trustworthy? Can I trust him with myself, with my children, with my friends? And I think how we actually see God has a direct link <coughs> with what our relationship with him is like. Um, Someone's written, the depth of our love and the vibrancy of our relationship with God can never outrun the beauty of our conceptions of him. So too, the beauty of our life will never outrun the beauty of the way we envision God. So if we see God as being evil, we will automatically have a relationship with him that says he's evil and I'm going to keep him slightly at arm's length because I can't trust him. Um, And I think, actually, if we read some of the stuff that we read in the Old Testament and then think that God is actually genuinely capable of that we will definitely keep him at arm's length because some of that stuff is horrific and if we turn around and try and make it just look nice we're actually doing a serious disservice to God and to our relationship with him Um, because actually I think we do end up keeping him at a distance just in case just in case he does that again Um, And just in case he does it to me or to the people I love. But I think what we need to understand is that God is a God of justice. And that he does bring justice. But he does it without bringing violence. Um, Greg Boyd says, If God's standards of justice is so fundamentally different from ours that physical abuse and the slaughter of babies can, can be considered just then it no longer seems possible to have a meaningful conversation about what constitutes justice. On other hands, we actually don't know what justice is if what we see there is then classed as being just. Um, And there has to be some kind of benchmark. Um, I think if we ignore the stuff that we just find hard, we will just miss out on so much that God is trying to teach us. And that's what I've done for so many years. It's just kind of gone, I don't understand it. I know that doesn't fit with how I understand God, so I'm going to ignore it. Um, and that's, that's one way of dealing with it, and it's not done me any major harm. But on the other hand, it's not done me any good. Um, and actually, I think it's really important that we do try and you know, actually get that so we can understand some of them. And God actually likes it when we wrestle with the hard stuff. When Jacob wrestled with God, you know, he actually was commended for it, was given a new name, you know, the one who wrestles. Israel. But the thing is, if we don't actually keep Jesus in mind when we wrestle with those tricky bits, then we can come to some very unloving assumptions and uh, conclusions. Um, If we worship a God of violence, we will feel that fighting in his name is okay. And actually, when we look at what's happened down through history, and I've been doing a lot of church history recently, um, we see that that first three centuries, it was Christians believed that God was a God of peace, a God of love. They did not fight. They did not resist. Augustine came along and actually said, no, it's okay. We can fight. Um, and things have been very different ever since. And we see an awful lot of bloodshed in the name of the church because they've said, actually, that God is a God of violence and we can do that. Um, in Hosea 9 verse 10 um, when God is talking about some people that are worshipping idols they become as vile as the thing that they loved we become like the one we worship so knowing what he's really like is really important so 
I know I'm not coming to the Old Testament yet, I'll get there, I promise. Um, but when I read the Bible, I have to decide, and we all have to decide, what is the interpretive key? When we read it, how do we understand it? Which bit trumps the other bits? Because actually there are bits which literally are contradictory. Um, if we look at them in simple words, we have to look at actually which bit do we understand as being more important, which bit helps us to understand the other bit. Um, and I will say straight off, my interpretive key is Jesus. Straightforwards. If it doesn't look like Jesus, I have to then try and work out what's actually going on. Because you know, either I've got my picture of Jesus wrong, or I'm misunderstanding what that passage is saying. So that, that's where I'm coming from. Um, and historically, um, and particularly in the West, and we fit into that, it has been the Greek idea of God as being unchanging and you know, no relationship to people in many ways that has been our interpretive key. And I don't think that's right. I think it is actually what Jesus shows us that should be where we start. What we see of Jesus is he's the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus shows us what God is like. That's what the New Testament teaches us. He is the Word. Jesus is God's words. He is the Word. He is the one that explains what God is like. He is what God has to say to us. He is love. God is love. 1 John 4 verse 8. In John 14 verse 9... Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So this, these are the things that mean, this is why I use this as the interpretive key. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is what the Father has to say to us. Not a part of what God has to say to us, but the whole of what God has to say to us about himself. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And what does he describe that testimony about God being? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what Paul is saying is that actually how to know God is to look at Jesus Christ and particularly Jesus on the cross. And how that then plays out through history. Um, Hebrews 13 verse 8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, he is the one that shows us what God is like, then actually God has been the same yesterday, today and forever, and that includes the Old Testament. Um, so do we start with Jesus as he's revealed in the New Testament? Do we start with the cross? Or do we start with the Old Testament to show us what God's like? And I would say that for me at least, it's starting with Jesus, as revealed in the New Testament, particularly what he's doing on the cross. So, is Jesus violent? What's Jesus like? He says, love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. And actually, that's a qualifying thing for being a child of God. You know, that's how we know who the children of God are, is what he says. When he says about loving your enemies, he is not talking about the work colleague that's pinched your pen. He is talking about the Romans who brought huge terror. These were the ones that could take you from, your, you know, from wherever you were and make you do something. If someone rebelled in an area, they would just kill random people. 
because that way they kept everything under control. That's who Jesus is talking about when he's talking about enemies. That's who the people that were hearing this were thinking about. You know, when they said, love your enemies, that's who they were thinking about. Jesus says, forgive those who persecute you. Um, when they come to arrest Jesus, and one of his disciples, Peter, goes to, and uses violence, Jesus actually says, no, all who live by the sword, all, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. That's in Matthew. And then Jesus even goes on so far as to actually heal the man that's been hurt by Peter. This is what we're seeing of Jesus and violence in the New Testament. We see a complete refusal to fight. Um, Matthew 26, 53, he said that he could call on legions of angels, but he doesn't. Um, Jesus doesn't ever see humans as being the enemy. He always sees Satan as being the enemy. Always, always, always. Um, the thing is that Jesus laid down his life for his human enemies, and by doing that, that defeated his spiritual enemies. Um, Matthew 18, Jesus says to forgive 77 times, or 70 times seven, depending on which version you're reading. It's just, just forgive and forgive and forgive and don't count it. Um, Jesus talks about love, 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 always, not violence. And the thing is, we, we can sometimes say, and I think what I grew up with, was that actually God has the right to take life violently. Um, now, I think whether we think that that is true or not, what we see of Jesus, we see that actually that's not how he operates, that's not how he works. Um, Jesus went to the cross to defeat the enemy in a non-violent way, and he calls on us to follow that example. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus didn't avoid the confrontation with Satan because he wasn't strong enough, but because there was a better way. There was a way better than violence. And that's the example that he's set down for us to follow. So what do I understand of Jesus on the cross? Um, and I think this is part of where we start. And it can be really tricky because sometimes what we understand of what Jesus was doing on the cross comes from other places in the Bible. So we can land up with circular arguments if we're not careful very, very easily. But actually, I think that that is where we should be starting. Um, when we see in Revelation, Jesus conquers by being a lamb, not by being a lion. Time after time after time. He submitted, he refused to fight back. And God withdrew and allowed that to happen. Um, and it's not a case of he withdrew and left Jesus to just deal with it. This was the plan that Jesus, as God, had made. And Jesus said, yes, this is the way we're going to do it. And God withdrew and left the evil forces to then take over and to, to use people to kill Jesus. Um, and I think that, that Jesus submitted, he withdrew, God withdrew. Um, and that evil forces were then actually what used people. When we look back in the Old Testament, those things we see time after time after time, that actually God withdraws his hand of protection, um, that 
he submits to what's going on and the evil forces then take over and that's where the violence is coming from. Um, so the thing is, we have grown up and we understand the cross as being where God set us free. We can understand the cross as being something amazing and something beautiful. If we had actually been outside Jerusalem on that day, that first Good Friday, we would have seen, literally what we would have seen and what we see when we read the words in scripture is actually a God-forsaken criminal dying on a cross. We understand it as being God submitting, God allowing the enemy to take over and therefore to defeat the enemy. And actually, when we see that that's, we've taken that on board, we know that's what's going on. But actually, if we were looking at it, that's not what we would understand as first century Jews. That's not what we would understand as Romans at the time. And sometimes when we look back at the Old Testament, I think there's the same kind of thing going on. We see these awful pictures of what's going on in the light, and it's just written down as it would have been at the time by the people that were watching, without them actually seeing what was going on under the surface. Um, and I think it, it was when I, I was reading it and I was thinking, I, this doesn't make sense, I feel like we're just twisting bits. And it's like, actually, no, that's what we already do. We do that already with the cross. We already look at it because of what we see in Jesus, because of what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Um, and I think when God carries our sin in the Old Testament, it can look rather like that too. It can look rather awful. Um, so God is a God of justice. And as we look back through the Old Testament, a lot of the violence is linked with justice, but not all of it. I cannot cover all the passages. <laughs> there are thousands and thousands, and there's far too much detail. If you really want to go into a massive amount of detail, there's a book, or two books, by a guy called Greg Boyd called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Um, there's also a lighter version um, called Cross Vision. Um, they're very good books. Um, they go into this in an awful lot of detail. Um, what we see, and you know, when we look back at some of the Old Testament stuff, we have to look at what was actually going on there. Um, one of the things that I've been learning as I've been doing this theology course is actually there's a real acceptance across all of um, sort of scholarly debate, if you like, that actually we see what's called progressive revelation when we read the Old Testament um, and right through the New that we see, take for example Satan, there's almost nothing about Satan in the very early verses of the Bible. We see the serpent and we interpret that as being Satan, but it doesn't actually say it. Um, it's not really until we get to after the exile that we really see much of a developed idea of what's going on with <coughs> Satan. Um, and over the time we see more and more truth being revealed and more and more of God's real, true character being revealed as we go through the Old Testament. Um, when you look at the Bible, to start off with, the first people that God was talking to, in many ways, when we look at the family of Abraham, they had just come out of Egypt, which was polytheistic, loads of gods, um, and actually, God had taken them out of that. And he's really strong at the beginning, 
on teaching them there is one God, there is no other God before me. Um, as we go through, we start to see other powers really being expressed by God. Um, and then as we get into the New Testament, we see the Trinity being expressed. We see that, that whole thing, it's being developed, it's being, it gets more complicated. If God had explained to them about the evil powers right at the beginning, then they might have just gone, okay, they're all equal, which was what we saw in Egypt. So that's why we see this progressive revelation. Um, we allow Jesus to modify things in the Old Testament. Um, the eye for an eye thing. When the eye for an eye law was given, that was a huge, huge improvement on what was going on around them. Um, that was actually at least vaguely fair. Whereas what had been going on before was, you take my eye, I'm going to take both your eyes or even your life. And then, of course, it would be, well, you took my dad's life, so I'm now going to take yours and all your families. It was just escalating. So the eye for an eye was, it was a limitation of the damage of what was going on in their understanding at the time. When Jesus comes along, he says, forgive, turn the other cheek. This is how we see this progressive revelation happening right through. Um, there's a, a scholar back in the sort of first, second, second, third century called Oregon. Um, and he looked through the surface meaning of the text to see what was really going on underneath. And actually, when you look at the writings from that time, until about the 4th or 5th century, that was actually what was done with the texts about violence in the Old Testament. And after Augustine, that changed. Um, and that's where people say, no, those are the bits that we have to just read and see, and that's how it works. Nothing, nothing on top of that. So the gods of the ancient Near East, I suddenly realised I'd put A and E on the handout, uh, I think it's on the second side, um, which means ancient Near East. So that's that whole of that that part of um, part of the world around Egypt, around Babylon, all across that that stretch, which is now from basically Egypt across to um, Iraq, that kind of area. What we see is that child sacrifice was really common. That was normal. That's what they saw as being how gods wanted things. Um, we saw that the national deity was really tied to a physical land. The, you know, this was our god, this land. And when they moved into a new land, they slaughtered everybody. That was normal. That's what happened. Um, they trusted their god to help them fight. Um, and they didn't, nobody would have ever thought their god didn't want them to fight. So this is the background of where the Old Testament was written. Um, so the thing is, where we actually see um, bits in the Old Testament where God effectively says, don't fight, that's where we really see what Jesus is saying back in the Old Testament. That's what really God is saying. That's the truth of what God is saying. And we see that in Gideon. We see it in two kings um, with Elisha and the Arameans. Um, we see it in lots of other places. Some of it's just hinted, some of it's little clues. Something else we see in the Old Testament, or sorry, in the ancient Near East, the flood narrative, all of those nations have flood narratives. Um, and in all of those, with one exception, which is the Old Testament, we see that actually it's an angry God decides, to, oh, I can't bother with you lot, and wipes them all out by flood. 
when we see in Genesis, <coughs> it's a judgment of evil. It's not just because God is angry. It's a different picture. It's, it's something that is moved on from the area that they were in. And we see God's heart really starting to come through at that time. Um, if you were in the ancient Near East, any violence that you did in God's name, or any violence you did, you ascribed to your God. That's what happened. That's what you did. Um, you exaggerate the violence because that gives God um, a real sense of power behind it. It was bloodthirsty. Not just child, but all human sacrifice was actually quite common. So when we look at it and we see actually there's quite a big difference between what they were growing, what they were in, that society they were in, and where what we see in the Old Testament. God worked through the laws and other things to improve things like the eye for an eye bit. And what we see is that over time, we see him moving them step by step closer to where he really is. Um, so, again, Greg Boyd says, nowhere does the Old Testament contrast with its surrounding ancient Near Eastern culture more than when it depicts God in Christ-like ways. Conversely, nowhere does the Old Testament conform to its surrounding ancient Near Eastern culture more than when it depicts Yahweh as a violent warrior God. And I think that's, it's quite clear when you start reading some of the other texts that are around at that time, that actually there are some bits where the Old Testament looks very, very like those, and there are some bits where it contrasts so greatly, um, and those are always the bits where it looks most like Jesus. So the one that most people worry about um, when they're looking at Old Testament and violence is the conquest narrative. When Israel came into, into the Promised Land, Time and time again, and there's a whole load of verses I think I've written down there for you, God tells them that he will drive them out. So God says, I will drive them out. And the people hear that and they go and kill people. Time after time after time, we see that. And God's plan is, I am going to drive them out. But that's not what happens. So we then have to ask the question, well, why is that not what happened? And I think one of the bottom lines is that they thought they knew how God wanted them to act. They saw what happened all around them. They knew that actually if a God said, we're going to take that land, that the way that all gods wanted that to happen was that you went in, you slaughtered everybody. And so they went in and did that. And God, to a certain degree, allows them to use his name despite that. Um, you know, the time after time we see this, I'm going to drive them out, I'm going to make the land actually so pest-ridden that they're going to move out on their own. No violence involved, the people will move out. Um, and he says he will do that because he's bringing judgment. So by bringing judgment, God would have actually been, if he'd done things the way he asked them to do, um, he would have done it without being violent or without having his people being violent. And we are called to be his people that are not violent. We're called to be his Jesus-like people. Um, in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's what God asked them to do. 
The Lord will bring you the deliverance. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Um, and they didn't listen. Um, you know, they they were told later, you know, destroy all, is what it, it says, but don't intermarry. If they'd actually destroyed all, there would have been nobody left to intermarry with. This is where we see them really ascribing to God, like their ancient Near Eastern surrounding people did, everything that was evil, everything that was actually worse and more than had gone on. Um, now, many of us will know the story of Gideon. We probably even acted it out if we went to Sunday school as children. Um, with Gideon was told, okay, we're going to defeat that lot that are, that are attacking. Um, no, you've got too many people. Get rid of some of them. No, still too many. Get rid of a few more. Until he was down to a band of people that was not enough by any human standards to defeat that army. Um, and what they did was they made a noise, ultimately. They shone some lights around. That was all they did. And the, the enemy was defeated. That's more a picture of how God wanted to work. 2 Kings 6 is a really fascinating story. I'm not going to have time to go into it, unfortunately, in any detail, but it's really worth reading 2 Kings 6 and 7. Um, first off, Elisha is trapped. He's been telling um, the king where the next trap is going to come from, from the Arameans. And each time they then circumnavigate it, they go around it. They don't face that battle, that physical battle. Um, and so they come to get Elisha and say, OK, let's get rid of Elisha, you know, and then the problem will be solved. The king of Israel won't know where we're going to be, all the rest of it. And one morning Elisha uh, wakes up and there's a huge army in front of him. He then says his servant panics and God prays that his servant's eyes would be opened and he then sees the angels that are all around, sees the powers that are there. Um, what he then does, so he's opened the eyes of the servant, he then prays to God and all the Arameans go blind temporarily. Elisha then leads them to the king of Israel, convinces him to give them a feast, convinces him not to kill them, which was what he naturally wanted to do, and to let them go free. And the last line of that story, basically, is that he'd showed mercy and that that brought peace on the land. That's how God wanted to fight his battles, I would say. Not with swords and spears. Um, then 2 Kings 7, so it's only the next chapter, but of course there's been a period of peace in between times. The Arameans again have come, um, and Jerusalem was now besieged. Um, suddenly they find that the encamping army around them is gone. Just absolutely fled in the night. All the tents are there, everything else is still there, but the people are all gone. Um, turned out that they'd heard the sound of an army coming in the middle of the night and they got frightened and they ran off. There wasn't an army coming. So the end, this was God's way of defeating that enemy peacefully. Nobody died. No one was attacked. Nobody attacked anybody. And the Lord won. Um, 
Hosea 1 verse 7, Yet I will show love to Judah, I will save them, not by bow, sword or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I the Lord will save them. These are the, I think these are the real pictures of what God is really like. Exodus 33 verse 29. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. You don't need to take up the sword and the shield. God's going to deal with it. Um, a whole load of other verses there. In some of those, there is still some violence. In a lot, there isn't. But actually, none of it is violence that God did. Um, time and time again, as I've said, I will drive them out, is what God says. It's not for the Israelites to do. But they go in and do it anyway. Um, when we get to Joshua 11, the Lord said to Joshua in verse 6, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. The reason the, the horses and chariots is so important, that was like the equivalent of whatever the most advanced military weapon of the day was. You know, we don't tend to see horses and chariots as being the most advanced military weapon. But basically God is saying get rid of the ability for you to be able to use that latest technology. That's not there for you to use. Don't use that. Um, so ways that God brings justice without violence on his part. Um, one of them I've already hinted at is he removes that hedge of protection. Um, in Job, Satan actually specifically asks God to remove that hedge of protection. In Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, God talks about handing people over to inherent consequences of their actions. Um, and that brings the justice. We see that God is constantly protecting by keeping evil at bay. And I think we forget that. We live our lives actually in quite a lot of comfort in the West. Um, and we forget that actually God is keeping evil at bay so much of the time. You know, having grown up in London with the constant threats of IRA bombs, um, I knew with a father in the police force that there was always a risk that he wouldn't come home or something would happen. You know, because he was a policeman in London in that time. Um, but actually, God protected and protected and protected. And at times, those bombs still got through and people got hurt. But time after time after time, we do see it. And we only see glimpses of it in our country. Um, but in so many countries, people do see that real protection um, because they can see the evil, whereas we often don't see the evil that's going on. Um, when we, we studied earlier this term um, about God has a name, um, and we looked at Jonah, where God didn't bring the plan to judgment because they repented. And then we see in Nahum where God goes ahead with the judgment. But actually, in the book, it actually says that he withdrew. He stopped protecting. This wasn't his people that he was protecting. He was protecting Nineveh from attack. But when he withdrew, people took over and they attacked. Um, in Israel, many, many times, as you look through the Old Testament, you see that when Israel faced judgment, 
Um, it was where God says, I will withdraw, I will pull back, I will hand you over. Um, we forget sometimes that so many of the uh, promises in the Old Testament are actually conditional. The if-then promises. If you do this, then I will do that. And nearly always um, it talks about him being, he'll protect them, he will care for them. Um, when we look on the cross, God withdrew and Satan and the people that he was using did all that they wanted to do. The evil powers didn't realise what they were actually doing to themselves. Um, and the people didn't realise that they were being used by the evil powers. You know, Jesus actually was prepared to say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They are being used by the evil powers. Um, in Acts 2, verse 23, when Peter is talking to the, the crowds at Pentecost um, in Jerusalem, um, and this is only weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, he says in verse 23 that about Jesus being handed over, and that's why he was killed. So God withdrew his protection. Um, in the uh, crucifixion of the warrior God, he says, the general assumption running through the Old Testament that if Yahweh is no longer present and therefore no longer protecting his people, it's because their sin caused him to abandon them. And that is a, it's quite a strong motive you actually see through the Old Testament, particularly in the times of the exile, where they really were suffering. But you see it also in Judges at times. Um, but Deuteronomy 31, so very, very early on. Many disasters and calamities will come on them, and in that day they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because the Lord our God is not with us? He says, and I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. So as a judgment, God has said, I'm turning away. I'm not looking. I'm not going to continue to protect. Actually, you're now on your own and you're exposed and those evil forces are going to take over and they are going to hurt. Um, and so time after time we see that God's judgment is actually something that he stops doing rather than he actively does quite often. He allows the enemy to overrun, he allows evil forces to have the upper hand. Um, and some places it's really clear, other places it's not so clear. But as I've looked through some of this stuff, I've kind of got actually, that's what I understand from what Jesus teaches. Um, we don't see God encouraging those evil forces to do it. They just get on and do it anyway. Um, in the Exodus story, the Exodus story is quite an interesting one. Um, all the plagues and all the rest of it. We then have a destroying angel. And in places it hints that that is God's destroying angel. Other places it hints that it's not. It is just a destroying angel. This is an angel who wants to come and bring destruction. Wants to come and kill. Um, and Exodus 12, 23, God won't let the destroyer into the house. He's protecting against that evil. <laughs> um, and that evil being wants to destroy. Um, and when there's no blood over the doorpost, God withdraws. He knows what the enemy wants to do beforehand. Um, and it doesn't actually ever say that God commanded the destroyer to destroy. 
go much later, AD 70, and the Romans overran Jerusalem because God had withdrawn his protection. Um, the Romans wanted to destroy and God didn't stop them. Um, 1, Thess 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 14 and 15, we see that destruction was God's wrath um, and that God didn't stop them. That was the expression of his wrath in that point, place. Um, but the thing is, we see that God always does it with a hope when he withdraws his protection that that is actually going to save them. When we look in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And God, uh, Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan so that they would be saved. You know, it's a real withdrawing of protection from God. Um, and I think we see that in quite a lot of places, just those little hints, um, so that, that judgment, so that people will be saved. Um, I think we see that God uses evil to punish evil. I've said it a little bit already. God is a God of justice. He is slow to anger, but justice does come. Um, there are evil powers out there, and God isn't the only power. Satan is not equal to God. We sing a song that says, you know, um, you have no rival, you have no equal. Um, and we can say, well, yes, he does have a rival. Satan is out there. But actually, Satan is so far, super, so far <laughs> inferior to God that actually there is no option of him winning. There is no option of him actually rivaling God for that final victory. So although we see evil actually coming out these days, it's as if God has no rival. He certainly has no equal. Um, the ultimate victory will be there. Now I think one of the problems that we have in the West, and we've had for a very long time, is that we actually almost don't think of evil powers as being out there. We're kind of okay, yeah, I can accept that God is out there as a spiritual being. We kind of forget that Satan is out there too. Um, and some of that goes back to the Reformation, some of it goes back further. Um, but Luther, at the Reformation, actually spoke of Satan as being the arch enemy and as pure evil, which is like, yeah, I can go along with that, absolutely no problem. But he also spoke and said that God was meticulously controlling everything and therefore that Satan was actually a mask that God wore. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem. That's what we've picked up subconsciously at times, that we somehow think that actually the evil that Satan does is something that God is orchestrating and is something that God is choosing to happen and that therefore actually it's God doing it. Now, Luther has had an awful lot of say down through more recent Western church history and the Protestant stream particularly. So it's something that has lurked back through. It's certainly where I, you know, where I grew up. Things that were taught by Luther and Calvin were very, very strong. Um, and that that picture was lurking somewhere underneath all those stories when I was there, that actually this was God doing these things. You know, no, absolutely no under any circumstance. That is not true. It's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Jesus looks like. 
And if Jesus is our ultimate picture of what God looks like, Jesus does not do evil by just using some evil force to do it. Jesus doesn't do that. That's not what it's like. And if Jesus doesn't do it, that's not what God's like. Um, the thing is, if we believe that, we're actually going to believe that God is capable of all sorts of terrible evil. And that's not the God I worship. And that's not my choice. I just don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe that that is true in any sense. I don't think that that's the person that I have met in Jesus is capable of those things. And this is partly why I think this kind of subject is really important. Um, we see that, you know, when God punishes evil, he basically allows the consequences to come. Um, and when we see even the Red Sea, we see that as God went in to the waters, the evil forces came back. Now, we don't see the world like that, but they did in those days. So the language that he used, particularly like Psalm 77, um, hints really, really strongly at it. And in Psalm 74, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now, we just see that as being archaic, poetic language. But actually, they were describing real powers evil powers that were going on at that time and this this is something i think we really struggle with in the west because we don't see the world like that we don't see it as being this is the waters being pushed back and actually the moment god came out with his ark came through the, the water the waters came back over again there was nothing stopping those forces from from filling that area again and it is poetic language but actually that is how they would that's how they thought and therefore that's how they wrote that's how they they put it into words in a way that they could understand um when we look at paul in ephesians 6 he says the battle is not against flesh and blood it's against the powers and the authorities and he says about putting on the armor of god um the thing is when we look round today, we see so many people that are labelled as our enemies. Um, but actually, the general rule, I think, in my head at least, is that if someone has flesh and blood, then that's not my enemy. Even if the enemy is using them to attack me. Um, and if we choose to love humans, that helps to defeat the powers that are behind them. Um, Satan is always the power that is behind enemies. And that's, even if that is actually, the, they're not doing anything wrong and it's me doing something wrong, he is behind my attitudes. Um, so one of the other stories that I think is very interesting when we look at is God violent in the Old Testament. Um, Semi-autonomous power. Sounds good, doesn't it? Lots of words. Um, basically, what it means is that God has said to somebody, I am going to give you power to be able to do something. And if they start to use it wrong, he does not necessarily take that power back. So we see 2 Kings 1, Elijah, 
He twice called fire from heaven to kill 50 soldiers on each occasion. That's 100 people dead. And he has used God's power to do it, according to the text. The third time, God actually says to him, are you now listening, effectively? Don't kill them. Go with them. Um, Clearly what he was doing was not in God's will, was not part of God's plan. I cannot see that God could say, yes, I want you to kill that hundred, but I, I really want you to go with them, so when the next lot come, don't kill them as well. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't make any level of sense on any, um, any, any standard. Um, and then when we see the disciples actually saying, well, can we do the same? Jesus says, no, you don't know what spirit you're of. So on the other hand, by wanting to do that, you are not working in God's power, you're working in Satan's power. Um, and God doesn't rescind our free will just because we've used it badly, or because we choose to use it badly. He didn't actually rescind that power from Elijah um, because Elijah chose to use it badly. Um, and there's quite a few examples of that in the Old Testament. So, um, how did they get it so wrong? Um, I think they looked at other gods around them to say how they should be doing things. They were culturally blinded, and we need to look at where we're culturally blinded too. Um, and so they didn't trust him to do it the way that he said he was going to, so they copied the other nations. I think they forgot that God loves the Canaanites as much as he loved the Israelites. Yes, he was bringing judgment, but actually he still loved them. And therefore they assumed that he wanted them to use violence. Um, today we take an awful lot of our thinking from Greek thinking um, rather than from Jesus. And so we think that some of this violence is okay. So I'd like to give five seconds at least. <laughs> some questions at the end but I'm just going to run through the consequences of whether we see God as violent or not violent and I think this is, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road a bit if we see God as being violent we think that we can do the same and since the 4th and 5th centuries that's what's happened um, we will often misunderstand the cross and can even land up with caricatures um, and one that came out quite vividly quite a few years ago was cosmic child abuse type idea um, and yes, it's a caricature, but actually it's the extreme end of how we understand the cross at times. Um, if we see God as violent, we actually won't see him as being truly loving, um, because that doesn't tie up. We also won't take seriously his commands to love your enemies. How does that play out in our lives today? How do I love the enemies that I am facing? How do I love the people that are threatening our nation? How do I love the people that are potentially threatening my family? How do I threat, you know, how do I deal with that if I believe that God is violent? Um, we won't fully trust him because we will wonder if he'll son suddenly turn on us if we think he's violent out there. Um, <coughs> when violence happens to us or to others that we know we don't actually have anyone that we can turn to, that we can trust, that really is non-violent, if we see God as being violent. 
Um, and uh, it says here, there is simply no consistent way to conceive of God being opposed to violence, sin and evil if one also believes that all violence, sin and evil are ultimately reflective of God's sovereign will. On the other hand, if we see God as being non-violent, um, we will seek to fight the way that he does. We will seek to lay down our lives um, for those who need it. We will seek to be peacemakers long before we get close to violence. The discussion came up this week about poppies. Um, and you know, I said ultimately I'd probably quite like to wear a white poppy rather than a red poppy. Um, because I think we should remember the sacrifice that people have made. And I think that's important. I don't think we should forget that. But I actually think there is a stand for saying, because the white poppy stands for pacifism, um, actually never again. And the person turned around to me and said, but, you know, they didn't have a choice. The thing is, the seeds of the Second World War were set in the armistice from the First World War. If they had dealt with the end of the First World War differently, and they had dealt with things differently in the meantime, it would never have come to Hitler being in power. It would never have come to that violence that happened. Do we, in our own conflicts, actually deal with things early enough to stop it coming to that real emotional or physical violence? And I think that's, are we becoming peacemakers early enough? Are we looking to see God's love, God's peace coming early enough to stop that happening? In Revelation, we see that John is teaching to resist um, great resistance by witness and martyrdom. <laughs> okay? Um, Sorry, can you say that again? God, uh, John teaches us to resist, but by witness and martyrdom, not violence. It's Richard Walkham. Um, and I think ultimately I have to ask myself the question who do I follow? Do I follow a pride fighter or do I follow a sacrificial lamb? Will I trust him even when things look tricky? Am I going to become more like him in his peacemaking and in his love or am I going to become more like him in resisting in a violent way? As I say, that may not be a physical violence, that may be emotional controlling violence. So there you go, I've probably left you with more questions than I've answered. But So, yeah, I mean, it's 10, 10 to 12 now, clock says 10 to 1. Um, have you got any questions? I cannot promise I can answer them. Um, I've still got a lot of questions about this myself, but actually I think these are some of the principles that I am understanding. And as I'm reading through the Old Testament, I'm seeing more and more of these little phrases of, I will hand them over, I will withdraw. You know, actually the pictures to me show that God loves my enemies, the enemies of his people, much more than I can ever do. I thought it was brilliant about removing the hedge of protection and do we sometimes think that the evil that Satan does is orchestrated by God? Brilliant. The, the only statement I'm struggling with is you said God sometimes uses evil to punish evil. Mm. I wanted to ask you, do you think that God has evil at his disposal? And if the answer is yes, do you think that he uses it? 
Uh, I did struggle with how to word that bit because it's difficult to put it into a small title. Bit. Yeah, I'm finding it hard to get my mind I, around that you think if you think that God uses evil. I think no, actually, probably it's bad wording. I it's I think he allows evil to run its course at times um, and doesn't stop it. That's more what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think God ever does anything evil. I think that goes against everything we read about what Jesus teaches um, and God is love. So, yeah, I don't. So, yes, that's bad wording on my part. <laughs>